I'm Kate Daniels. I feel so privileged to have Sarah Van Gelder join us. Sarah is the founding editor of Yes Magazine, and if you haven't gotten your subscription yet, I hope that you'll do so right after this hour is done. Yes is a magazine nationally recognized for exploring leading-edge solutions to the major ecological and human challenges of our times. Related to this and simply her activism in general, Sarah went on a 12,000-mile journey a year and a half ago, and she recounts the details in her new book, The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America. There's so much here for all of us, so let's meet Sarah and learn more. Sarah Van Gelder, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Really, I am just so excited that you are available, that we can have this conversation, because if there was ever a time to have such a conversation and talk about your book, The Revolution Where You Live, uh, I can't think of a more appropriate time. Well, I'm certainly getting that kind of response when I when I got and speak about the book. I think uh, a lot of people are are pretty upset and pretty shocked at what we've been seeing happening from the nation's capital, where where I am right now on a book tour, and uh, and people are needing a different kind of message. And when you took this journey of 12,000 miles, this was happening, um, well, about a year and a half ago. The world was changing, but certainly not where it is now. I bet you could not have foreseen the the need, the value of the book coming out at this time. No, I certainly saw that there were a lot of people who were really discontent with where things were, that there was a sense of people being left out of the prosperity that, that a small percentage of Americans are enjoying, but so many others are left out of. Um, so I, I had that feeling that people were, were experiencing that kind of disconnect um, and, and were really wishing for something better. You know, they really, they really believed that there could be a better way that things could, could unfold in their own communities and unfold throughout the nation. Um, but I, no, I didn't anticipate. I didn't anticipate Trump. Although when I look back at the book, I did write in several different places about the the risks that come along with, uh, you know, what happens when a, when a large group of people are feeling so disconnected, are feeling like, you know, their kids can't go to college and they're swamped with debt and they lost a lot of their equity during the housing crisis of 2008 and haven't been able to come back from that. You know, there's so many things that have been undermining the ability of the middle class to maintain that basic sense of security. So I'm not surprised that people were ready to think about something more radical than, than folks inside a beltway might have, might have considered. And here, on that journey that you took, it was uh, about four and a half, five months long, right? Correct, yes. And during that time, you traversed from coast to coast and uh, north to south and really touched on some of the most uh, challenged and fragile communities in this country. And from that, uh, the the big word that kind of resonates in in neon letters, I think, is hope. That's right. (laughs) And of course, that's what I was looking for. I wasn't I wasn't only spending time in communities that are really troubled. I was also, while I was there, I was seeking out the people who were working to create something better for those communities. Because I wanted to see, you know, what what would a path forward look like for our country? And who's leading that? 
I had a sense that the, you know, the people within the power structures are too stuck in the old patterns. And I thought, maybe there are people here on the margins of society, people in the Rust Belt or Appalachia or on Native reservations or, you know, rural America or, you know, or the urban cities that, you know, the, the cities that have, have been abandoned by manufacturing jobs. Maybe there are people in those places because people are endlessly creative. They're always coming up with some way to, to cope with whatever their circumstances are. And I wanted to find out what people are actually doing in those kinds of communities. And, and yes, they're doing remarkable things, and they're things that I think are relevant to, to our whole society, things ranging from working on starting new new form of, of an economy that's more locally rooted and more able to provide long-term, steady sustenance instead of the kind of boom-and-bust economy that we have with this, this extraction mindset. So people who are, you know, who are creating that kind of thing, people looking at, at the food system and saying, you know, we want, we want to grow more of the food ourselves in our communities. Not necessarily that every person is going to grow their own food, but that there is more of a, of a local food system that can sustain us and give us, give us fresher food and sustain us during various kinds of crises and can also make sure that the people in some of those communities who are not accessing healthy food, that they can access healthy food also. And, and there's so many implications that that has in terms of people's well-being. So all sorts of ways people are just sort of stepping up and saying, you know, we, we want a different world and we're not going to wait. We're going to just go ahead and create it. And the big important message I feel with that is that that's where the hope comes in, is that we, the what we might look at is that the little individual really can do something. When we look at the like this big machine, it feels just impossible. But the truth of the matter is the change happens in these small little areas, small steps lead to making those bigger steps and making and creating change, which is exactly what you were finding across the country. That's right. And it's really important that people reconnect with each other because if, if you try to do it all by yourself, I think sometimes we have a, a mythology in our country that one person you know, can go out and be a hero and, and do it all. And, um, and I think actually it takes, it takes a village, you know, it takes people connecting to support one another. And different people bring different strengths, you know, in some, in some instances, one person might be the person who, you know, is comfortable getting up in front of a crowd and somebody else knows how to do the technology and somebody else knows how to fix the car when it breaks down on the way to, the, you know, so different people bring different things. And when everyone has a chance to bring their own gift into that circle and be recognized and appreciated for that, that also breaks down this, this toxic isolation we have in our culture where people just feel all alone and feel powerless. When people get together in small, even if they're small groups or larger groups, we've been seeing at the airport, you know, people, people just showing up in large numbers to say, you know, we're a country that welcomes in the stranger. We're not a mean-spirited country. I happen to be coming into Washington, D.C. during one of those demonstrations at Dulles Airport. And, you know, people, people had such joy as they handed flowers to the people coming off these airplanes and said, you're welcome here. And, you know, they had signs with big hearts on them just to say, you know, we, we don't want to be seen as a mean-spirited country. So there's so many ways, I think, that reaching out to our immediate community where we live, making that expression real in all kinds of ways, whether it's resisting a, an immigration policy that's mean-spirited or if it's holding a community potluck, 
people just thrive on that sort of, of dynamic where we're working together for a common purpose. And for you, this seems to have really been at the core of your life from a a very young age. But more recently, where you live on Bainbridge Island, you had that very kind of experience of connecting with the people to really build a a really sustainable and thriving community. Yes. So it was when my kids were really young that a group of us got together to form a co-housing community. We moved in in 1992, and the community is still thriving. I'm not there anymore, but the community is still thriving. There's a whole generation now that grew up there, and we actually, when we had our 20th anniversary, we asked some of those young people to come back and talk about what their lives were like. And it was so lovely hearing, you know, hearing how much strength they got from, for example, the intergenerational interactions that they could have. Our nuclear families, you know, are so fragile in some ways. People, kids really need to have access to a number of different kinds of adults at different ages and, and kids at different ages as well. And they learn so much. They, they go out and choose the mentors that they need for the particular developmental stage that they're at. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to have had that co-housing setting that my kids could grow up in and, and, and have such, such a rich childhood. And here, the story of that experience is in your new book, The Revolution, Where You Live, so that wherever we might find that we need encouragement, actually, all of the stories have some kind of essence that I feel is really going to feed us uh, all the time or at different times, different stories are going to resonate. So that is one of them. And I, you know, just seeing how you already have that rooted in you, it was no surprise, actually, I guess, that you took on this journey of 12,000 miles. Yeah, I was I was worried about the state of the world. You know, <laughs> we've been we've been publishing yes for close to twenty years at that time, and we've been looking at some of the same issues and looking for solutions over that that period of time. We were looking for people who were creating a new economy for themselves and responding to the incredible inequality we, we have in this country, where twenty individuals now have as much wealth as half of the American population. And virtually all the economic benefit of the last decades has gone to the top 1%, and most of us have been left out of that. So we were really interested in, in solutions to that when we started Yes, We were really interested in solutions to the climate crisis, because even though people aren't talking about that a lot now, the actual physics continue to, to unfold, and the, the disruption in the climate threatens our ability to feed ourselves and have enough fresh water to live on. So these are... That's a really serious question, whether or not it's politically at the top of people's minds at this particular moment. And the third question has been around the question of race, because even though many of us had hoped that the election of Barack Obama could somehow close the chapter of racial inequality and racial violence in this country, it didn't happen. The, the, the race, racism continues, and we keep hearing stories of, of African-Americans who are harmed or killed by police. And so we've been looking for, for where there's solutions to that as well. So the, the journey came out of a real concern, you know, is, are there solutions out there that we, we haven't at Yes Magazine that we haven't found yet? Are there some better ideas? Can we, can we somehow figure out where this country can go to take on these really fundamental questions of, of, that can make or break our future? 
I didn't know that at the time this this that we were going to see the election of Donald Trump, but the the degree to which inequality has created such hardship for people, I think made made that not so surprising. But but as you said, that what I was searching for were the solutions. So every community I went to, oftentimes I was invited by somebody on social media. They they'd say, hey, you should come see me. We, we're doing this amazing thing here in, in our community. Come visit. Or sometimes it was word of mouth. I'd ask one person, so you know, who do you know in the Rust Belt who's doing something really exciting? And and little by little, I sort of put together this this itinerary as I traveled. When I was in Chicago, I said, so where where should I go next? You know, I'm thinking about going to Detroit and. And so little by little, I put together the whole itinerary based on who in those communities were doing really extraordinary things. And they were, they were extraordinary things, but they were regular people like you and me. They weren't, they weren't superstars. They weren't celebrities. They were just ordinary people who got together with some other people and said, you know, let's do something here. Let's create something different that's going to work better for our lives and that's going to work better for the whole community. And what I find so exciting and really encouraging as you share that piece of the story, Sarah, is not having the plan fully laid out before you go. That's a lesson I think we really have to know is to just take one step and ask questions and doors will open as they need to. We can't necessarily plot it all out at this moment. That's right. It it, it certainly opens opens up the horizon for really interesting things to happen. And we don't feel like we have to know everything up front. You know, we can, we can see where we get invited in. We can see where one story leads to the next story. So there's a number of stories in the book that, that I, I didn't know anything about until I arrived in that community and somebody said, oh, you know, you got to come, you got to come check out this little theater ensemble. They're doing some amazing things. They're this radio station or this, you know, this little community farm. And, and I go there and, just meet these wonderful people. And was that the area in Kentucky? Well, the the theater ensemble, there was one in Kentucky, and there was another one in Ithaca, New York, that I write about. So which, well, they're all important, <laughs> of course. Uh, let, let's talk about the New York one. Share your story of that, if you would. Sure. Um, so I visited Ithaca, New York, which is a, a lovely college town in the Finger Lakes, district of New York State, and um, Ithaca is a predominantly white community, has a small African-American population, but like every community has its history of race. In this case, I I ran into a couple of people who are running a little theater ensemble, they call it Civic Ensemble, and they create plays out of the stories that people in the community tell, so they actually can bring people together have story circles. They tell stories about something like, they'll give them a question like, when have you felt unsafe? Or, you know, t- tell us an experience of, of um, what race means to you in our community. And out of those kinds of stories, they form theatrical productions. So the one that I learned about when I was there had taken place from, from one of those story circles. Somebody had told the story of her son, who was a middle school-aged African-American young man who who missed his school bus and decided he was going to walk to school. Wasn't a great idea because the school was a long ways off, but he didn't want to bother his mother, so he took off cutting through some neighborhoods, including some that were pretty much all affluent and white. And one of the people in one of those neighborhoods called the police on him. So the story takes place in, in real life. 
the police officer showed up and understood what had happened and called the young man's mother and got permission to take him to school and everything was fine. But in the play, something a little bit different takes place. In the play, the young man says, wait a minute, how did we get to this point where just my walking down the street should, should cause somebody to, to call the police? How did we get to this point? And as we know, when there's an encounter between a police officer and a young African-American man, it doesn't always turn out so well. There's, there's stories in the news every day about, about those kinds of encounters, and some of them turn out to be deadly. So this is a serious question. When, when somebody gets stopped, you know, why, why just me walking down the street was enough to provoke a phone call? So in the play, the two, the two of them, the officer and the young man, go back through history and gather up the stories of how race has unfolded in this country and how it's unfolded in that particular community. And at the end, there's not any kind of a big, you know, everybody singing Kumbaya and everything's great, but there's a little bit more understanding between those two characters. And there's a little bit more understanding among the audience. They open the audience up for conversation afterwards as well. So the audience has a chance to see their own community reflected back to them, their own community story of race reflected back to them. And the, story, and the conversation can open up about not only what's been in the past, but what do we want for our future. And there's that big resonating hope that it is so possible. It takes the small connections. We have to be willing to let down some barriers, be at least a little bit open, and that openness will grow. I think that that is so critical for us to realize in sharing these stories in small areas and then on this wider stage that we can learn from each other so much. Yes. That's right, we can. I was so, you know, I was so moved so often by by how much creativity people have and how willing they are to step up and, and, and make things happen, you know. And so grateful because I think a lot of times we get kind of hopeless if we just, if we just listen to the news and all the news is coming at us from the Trump administration or from people who just um, are stuck in the old patterns we don't necessarily see that this other these other ways are possible. Exactly. And we are certainly uh, being very proactive. It's not burying one's head in the sand. It's just choosing to take a different, slightly different focus and looking at the hopeful ways that we can be these instruments of change. And it can happen. And I feel that in sharing these multiple stories in the revolution where you are, Sarah, you are really giving us that kind of opportunity to see which part of it might really work for us, or it might be the inspiration for a new tangent. That's right. Yeah, I think, I think, that's my hope is that people read these stories and, and they say, oh, you know, I could do that. That is not something that's impossible. I can get together with a few other people and we can make this happen. In fact, one of the things I'm thinking about doing now is, is starting an online school for people to learn from each other. So when one community has succeeded in doing something, they can teach people in other communities who would like to, to learn to do the same thing. So that's something I'm cooking away on now as I, as I finish up my book tour. And that's how inspirations are born, just how one step at a time opens those new doors. That's right. Right. Yep. Yep. 
So let's let our listeners know about where they can get the, the book. So there are several ways. And of course, you as the co-founder of Yes Magazine uh, have this incredible website that I think uh, bears mentioning and uh, is a, one of the sources for acquiring the book. That's right. Yesmagazine.org. Um, go to the store and you can, you can get the book at a discount there. And as you had told me earlier, your all of your favorite book sources also have that book, the, this book, Rev, The Revolution, where you are available on their site as well. That's right. And then I have a site especially for exploring the ideas of this book called TheRevolutionWhereYouLive.org. So I have my blog on there and information about my book tour and links to where you can buy it. I'm not actually selling the book on that, on that site, but links to where you can buy it at Yes Magazine. So that's another another source. Terrific. So lots of opportunities to get the book. And it might be just uh, an individual. It might be a group of people who are uh, friends and are looking to kind of up what they do uh, in their social gatherings, that this could be the inspiration of some great new happening in your own neighborhood, in your own community. That's right. We've already gotten word from several book clubs that they're ordering multiple copies so that they can have a conversation about the book, but also about how that applies to them. So yeah, it's a great it's a great idea because the, the lovely thing about book book clubs is that people have the are giving themselves the space to think a little bit more deeply, think a little bit bigger about possibilities, and they're meeting up in person. And I think that's a really important lesson that I drew from this travel is that. A lot of us spend a lot of time on social media, and we might have umpteen Facebook friends and umpteen Twitter followers, but there's something really important about getting together face-to-face. There's something that nourishes our souls in a way that social media just doesn't, and something that evokes empathy. There's actually interesting research about how toxic social isolation is, that it's as toxic as smoking cigarettes to let yourself get isolated. So there's so many reasons for doing that for basic well-being, but also so we don't feel powerless as we see one after another really bad policies coming down from the Trump administration, that we don't feel that kind of sense of powerlessness and fear. This especially, you know, I'm especially concerned about the various different groups that could be targeted under the Trump administration, people like Muslims, people like immigrants, people of color more generally. But there's so many, there's so many people that are vulnerable, whether it's a school teacher who insists on teaching the real signs of evolution, or whether it's a person working for the National Park Service, or whether it's somebody who's a journalist who, who just you know reports on what they actually see and not what, what the um, administration line is. There's, there's so many people who are or could be targeted, and it's so important that we know that we have each other's backs, just like the people at the airports have shown, that we're not going to let ourselves get picked off one group after another. We're going to stay and support one another and, and really make sure that we keep our democratic institutions intact. And that's where, again, the stories, the experiences that you encountered just by being referred one to the next, that you were able to find these places where these opportunities, the change is happening, and it's very grassroots. And that's what we have to remember. It comes from the grassroots, that it really germinates and grows. Uh, not to think of top-down policy and, and we're puppets. We really 
get a sense of empowerment here? Yeah, I think that that even the the best administrations, the the government tends to be a follower, not a leader, and they tend to follow things that they know can work. So when we do our innovations at the local level, we make things work at the local level, then it's more likely to be able to ripple out and take effect in other communities and sometimes become national policy. I was really inspired in Canada, you know, that the single-payer healthcare system they have there that is basically working really well, especially really well compared to our healthcare system. That didn't happen all at once. It happened when one province adopted that system. And it worked so beautifully for that one province that pretty soon people all over Canada were calling for it and and able to achieve that, even though politically it wasn't originally considered doable. So sometimes it takes people in a few communities, a few states, to, and, and that's how essentially how um, how gay marriage also was adopted in the United States. The people in some states made it happen, and eventually that rippled out and became national law. So I think it's really important to think about not only are we doing really good work for our own communities when we take these steps, but we're also helping make things better for for the whole the whole community of human humanity by creating examples that can ripple out from there. And it's so important for us to really grasp that to to know that we can make a difference. And we just need to find what it is that is our inspiration. Really work with that. Uh, We don't have to do it all. And that's what we find in these various communities. You know, they start with what's really critical there. That's all we need to look at. Just really get involved. Be part of the action. Absolutely. You know, the, the the story of Standing Rock I've, I've written about since the book. It's not in the book because that happened before that, but but it's it's really interesting when you think about that that whole thing started when some young people in Standing Rock decided to run to Washington D.C. because they didn't want this pipeline to go through. So you know, the, some young people who are some of the poorest and most powerless people in our country, in the middle of North Dakota get out on the road with the one thing they have, which is their body, and they run all the way to the nation's capital to try to stop the pipeline. And that simple step galvanizes their community, which galvanizes the Native community nationwide and galvanizes so many other people until now there's this national movement to stop this pipeline and to stop other pipelines that threaten to poison people's water. Those pipelines are rupturing all the time. And, you know, if you'd asked me a year earlier, could a, could a group of teenagers from the middle of North Dakota on a, on a poor reservation, could they spark a national movement? I would have probably said, I don't, I don't see how that would happen. But it did. It happened because they felt so strongly about the, the love of the place where they're from, the love of their water and their land and their community, that they were willing to go out there and make that happen. And I, I just think that we, we have to we have to be willing to do things that we might not have thought of doing earlier. We were, we're running out of time on on the climate crisis, and and we're really threatened by some of these administrative policies. And we just have to be willing to put ourselves out there together with each other, with love. You know, I'm not talking about violent revolution. I really believe in love. But we need to be willing to really take a stand on some of the things that really matter to us because there's nobody else who's going to do that for us. Exactly. 
And that's where it there really is an excitement here. And thank you for sharing the story of Standing Rock. Uh, to know that it was just a few individuals and the young people, you know, that they need to feel that they do have power. So to go with the ideas, see what the issue is right where we are at the moment and move forward. And Sarah, I think you have really done us just such a, a wonderful service, given us this great gift of the re- the revolution where you are, stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America, because here we can touch on this and either use part of someone's plan or it just inspires something that's happening right here where we live, right? That's right. And different, as you said, different people have different ways of of getting involved, I think it's really important that people look to the things that matter the most to them, where they feel really called, whether it's protecting public education or trying to make sure that health care is available to everyone. You know, maybe there's somebody who's had an illness in their own family and they can they can really understand how that's going to affect other people if they don't have access to health care. So whatever it is that, that, you know, whether it's protecting the natural environment, the, the water where you live and the climate for all of us, whatever it is that really tugs at your heart, when you start there and when you start with a few other people who, who share that, you, you can do amazing things. Absolutely. So let's mention the websites again so that people know exactly where to get this great source of inspiration. So yesmagazine.org, where you can buy the book. My website is Revolution Where You Live all one word, revolutionwhereyoulive.org, and there's links to the to where you can buy the book from there. Um, and then you can also get the book at your regular booksellers, local independent bookstores, Amazon, and so forth. Terrific. Sarah Van Gelder, this has been so inspiring and really so exhilarating as well. Thank you so greatly for having taken your journey, followed that inspiration, and, of course, for spending time with us this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you.